defeating Goliath and defeating uh, Israel's enemies. But he had some lows. And when I say lows, I'm not just talking about fiddling his taxes or um, sort of uh, nudging the vending machine so two chocolates come out rather than one. One of his most famous uh, lows was an abuse of power. He used his power as king to sleep with um, uh, a woman who was the wife of one of his captains. He then discovered she was pregnant. And what did this famous, illustrious king that is going to uh, um, see the Messiah come out of his line do? Well, he makes sure that the husband is killed in war. It is a grim time for David. And out of this outrageous union, like it's a really sinful one and he gets uh, confronted by the prophet Nathan, um, out of this union with Bathsheba, he uh, has a son called Solomon, which is peaceful, which is kind of exactly what David wasn't. Um, so it's like uh, David's antithesis is hopefully his son. And it's kind of like wishful thinking almost. And um, Solomon, he would grow up and he would grasp the throne uh, by bloodily executing his rivals. So he was like his father's son, okay? You can see uh, some connections going. And so Solomon has some pretty grubby parentage and uh, he gets his job by killing other people. And it's pretty grim, his beginnings. But in his story, we find a beautiful moment of grace and we're going to look at that in a minute. But I want to, before we look at that, I want us to consider David and Solomon and consider that these guys plumb the depths of sin like unlike the, probably the most of us will. They experience the highs and some absolutely outrageous loads. And I want you to listen to this. If you imagine, so that this is King David, the one that Messiah is going to come from, and it says this in uh, Psalm 51. So this is the psalm he writes when he's found out about his adultery, about his murder. And it says this in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God. Not because my sin is tiny, but according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Everyone say great. Great. Great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. And they're pretty big transgressions, you know. You're going to have to have a pretty big blotter to blot them out. Wash away all my iniquity. And some of us are like, well, I'm not sure we should. This is an adulterer and a murderer. How, much, how many transgressions are we going to uh, excuse? Are we um, saying they don't matter? But David goes on. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. David is very acutely aware that he is an evil man. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. 
Cleanse me with hyssop, which is like a herb, and I, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. David had a hope that even he had committed, like virtually the worst imaginable sins someone could commit, he had a hope that he could get forgiven. He had a hope that God would somehow cleanse him of his sin. And ultimately, that would be through his sort of great, 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 great grandkid, Jesus. And I want us, as we look at David and Solomon for a second, some of us don't have the most auspicious beginnings. You know, we have one parent or two parents and, and neither of them did a good job or they were completely absent or something else. And it says, um, and we can look back and say, you know, we had this terrible beginning. But David and Solomon give us hope that even if our origin story is terrible, that there is hope and the possibility of redemption. That no matter how low we have sunk, there is a chance that God can reach out and lift us up. And this is something else. If yesterday was full of shameful deeds, if even your face goes red at thinking what you got up to yesterday, and you've managed to sort of drag yourself into church and you sort of sat at the back and kind of like got your head covered because you know you don't deserve to be here. There is this, there's this wonderful grace in scripture that says it doesn't matter what you've done. There is no sin greater than God's grace. There's nothing that he cannot blot out. There is no, uh, there's no blot on your soul. There is no uh, damage to you that God cannot rescue you from there is nothing that can disqualify us from redemption if God can save David from that and we're going to have a look at this beautiful moment with Solomon too then there's hope for all of us and the idea that somehow our past our past actions or our heritage disqualifies us or means that we can't do something scripture doesn't know anything of that it invites us in to God's grace so, let's get on to 1 Kings chapter 3. There we go. It's not an actual picture of Solomon. Um, so, 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 3. It says this. Solomon, so he'd killed his brother and whatever else to get to the throne. Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the instructions given him by his father David. So it's kind of like the Torah and probably some of the Psalms and uh, some of the other things going on um, in earlier scripture. By walking according to the instructions given by his father David. Except that he offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. And we'll talk about that in a sec. The king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices, for that was the most important high place. And Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that, author, on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream. And God said, ask for whatever you want me to give to you. Such a question. 
Ask for whatever you want me to give to you. And Solomon answered this. You have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David. Because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart, you have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on this throne this very day. Now, Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I am only a little child and I do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people. You have chosen a great number of people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart. Give him a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon asked him for this. So David said to him, since you have asked for this, and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, but for the discernment in administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart, so there will never be anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both wealth and honour, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. And then Solomon awoke, and he realised it had been a it had been a dream and he returned to Jerusalem stood before the ark of the Lord's covenant and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings and then he gave a feast for all his court quite right that kings should end with that and the law of Moses in Torah in the first five books is made clear uh, that worship should happen in one place it's, it happens in the one place that God assigns you know where the ark of the covenant is the practices of all the people around Israel all the pagan people that knew nothing of Yahweh, what they did, they found high places and they sacrificed to gods on them. So you found a hill or a mountain and made an altar or a shrine and that would be your worship. And it seems that Israel continued that bad practice. Solomon's not excused from this. These high places where all the pagans worship, some of the Israelites thought that seemed quite a good idea. Why do we have to go to uh, uh, the Ark of the Covenant anyway? Can't we worship God in our own way? Does that sound familiar to anyone? People, even Christians go, I'd like to worship God in my own way. I don't need to go to church or an institutionalized religion. I can do it in whatever way I want. Well, Solomon um, listened to that lie and he worshipped God on the high places and he shouldn't have and it's against scripture. And his practice in this moment is wrong. He should not be worshipping God in Gibeon. But God sees his heart and he finds in Solomon's heart someone that loved the teachings of his father. Solomon loved the teachings of his David. Some of his practices were out of whack, but Solomon loved the teachings of his father. And so it's probable that, that Solomon loved reading the Psalms and, the, and the, uh, the books of Moses, the Psalms that we read earlier, and he had an insight into God. I wonder if you've ever found this. I found it to be true. Even as you come here on a Sunday, there are issues pressing in on you, stuff you are thinking about. Have you ever known it where you've come here and your body's here, but your mind is what's going to happen on Monday or what happened on Saturday? And it's 
just completely distracting and your mouth is singing I surrender and your mind is thinking I'm going to get that person back for what they did or how am I going to escape that particular issue and we can find ourselves on a Sunday morning uh, and I think there's something weird about Sunday mornings is that suddenly we haven't we're not here to do stuff we're not here to achieve stuff where it's kind of like a moment of rest and we're worshipping and then suddenly our minds go to all the things that we're thinking about that our activities try and distract us from. And we can be here on a Sunday morning and we're thinking, what should I do? What decision should I make? Did I make a bad decision last time? Should I make a different decision? Is this God's will for my life? This opportunity or uh, this tragedy that's come? How am I expected to cope in this particular scenario? God, I, I can barely keep my uh, 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 head above water. What on earth is going on? Do I deserve this? Something bad has happened. And you're like, is this your judgment on me? Is this your furious anger because I've stepped out of line and I'm kind of missed what it was? Am I being punished for something that I did do that I'm a little bit uh, um, unsure of what it was? Am I being faithful to God in this scenario? If I take this opportunity, if I make this decision, if I go in this new direction, is it something God wants or is it not? And uh, then you call full circle and go, am I overthinking this and should I just relax and worship God? I wonder if you've ever had that in worship where... You're singing and your mind is just working furiously. And it seems that Solomon was like that. He is worshipping God. He's doing it in the wrong place, but he's doing it in the right way. So he gets some brownie points. And there's a conversation going on in his head. Flipping heck, I'm king. What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to lead this massive people? And let me tell you, Israel is full of people that think they know best. Israel is full of people uh, that are stiff-necked and want to do their own thing. You know, God says, go and worship by the Ark of the Covenant. And they go, forget you, I'm going to go and find a nice high place. You know, I'm going to go top of uh, um, Leaf Hill and do it there. Because it's nicer than busy old uh, Ark of the Covenant scene. And Solomon's getting stressed, and he's like, how am I supposed to lead these people? How am I supposed to be in charge? My, my dad, he killed loads of people and won loads of victories, and there was respect, but I'm not going to get that. What am I supposed to do? And so Solomon's feeling anxiety. How am I supposed to rule God's people with truth and justice and righteousness? What am I supposed to do? What am I even doing here? And God sees this and he sees the drama that is going on and on in Solomon's heart and he comes up to him with this incredible invitation and he goes ask for whatever you want because he knows what's going on in Solomon's heart he knows the manacle furious overthinking that is going on so often we allow these worries these anxieties these manic obsessives obsessions to fill our minds and they either stop us coming to church because there's too much to do too many other things to see too or they inhibit our worship you know we're singing whatever song has been chosen but uh, our hands not up because our heart is nowhere near this place our heart is involved in the minutiae of our daily lives I wonder if you've ever heard the saying God won't give you more than you can handle. 
That is unbiblical. Doesn't, doesn't happen in scripture. Some of you know that God will give you more than you can handle. Some of you know that there are things in your life that without him, you would be an absolute mess. Because it's completely unbiblical to say that God will give you more than you, uh, God won't give you more than you can handle. If you've got a Bible, turn to Ephesians. Actually, don't. Let me read out um, the message I always like to bring a new spin on it uh, from this. So it says this in Ephesians 6. Be prepared. You're up against far more than you can handle on your own. That is a word for you all this morning. Be prepared. You're up against more than you can handle. I know some of your stories this morning looking around. You're up against more than you can handle. You can't do it. You're idiots if you're trying to do it on your own. You're foolish. You're out of your mind if you try and do it without God's help. Take all the help you can get. And you're idiots if you don't. Take all the help you can get. Every weapon God has issued. So that when it's, it's all over but the shouting, you'll still be on your feet. Take the stuff that God gives you. Truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation. They're more than just words. Learn how to apply them. You'll need them. They're not optional extras. They're not nice things that we learn about in Sunday school that we can use or not. It's up to us. They're vital for your daily Christian walk. You'll need them throughout your life. Well, I think I'm 46. I still need them. I thought perhaps, you know, after the troublesome teenage years, life would be plain sailing. It just gets differently complicated. And then when you're a parent, it gets differently complicated again. And then when they go off, it gets differently. It just, life goes on and on, and you're always going to need these weapons. God's word is an indispensable weapon. Indispensable. Can't do without it. You think you can, but you can't. In the same way, prayer is essential in this ongoing warfare. Prayer, pray hard and long. When was the last time you prayed hard and long? Not just a quick help, but like an intentional, deliberate, a series of thoughts one after the other for some actual time. Pray for your brothers and sisters. Keep your eyes open. Keep other spirits up so that no one falls behind or drops out. We were not made to be independently strong. You're not made to live life on your own. You're not meant to cultivate some sort of inner strength that somehow you're a warrior for life. Life is all about not doing that in Scripture. This mythical inner strength that you can handle anything God throws at you. It's at best garbage and at worst it's dangerous and godless. You are not enough. You haven't got what it takes. We were created to be acutely aware of our inadequacy and lean on God who is delighted to be leaned on, who loves it who finds immense pleasure in us leaning back into his presence and say, I need you, God, and God goes, I've got this. We were made to supernaturally benefit from God himself. 
And so this morning, for your sanity, for my sanity, for your walk, for my walk with him, for the hope of others when they see how we run our lives, don't do it on your own. Don't imagine that somehow you're uh, a warrior princess who's going to achieve anything. You need to depend on God. You need to lean back into his resources, his weapons, the things that he has given uh, for our help. It needs to be constant and it gets total. You don't get to, and I know this for a fact, you don't get to 45 and suddenly you can do it all in your own because you know all the facts. You need to lean on him constantly. And Solomon's reply to this is brilliant. Solomon says, my dad was faithful, righteous and upright. It's a little bit of a rose-tinted spectacles, isn't it? It's not a great summary of David, because he was also an adulterer and a murderer, and Solomon doesn't tell us that, does he? But we know it from history. You know, Israelite, uh, Israel's history is quite clear in the fact that David uh, fell short quite a few times. But there were times when David's passion for God attracted divine recognition. There were moments, these high points, where God goes, that's my boy. If you've got a Bible, turn to 2 Samuel 7. Listen to this. This is David's prayer. Who am I, sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you've brought me this far? I'm a shepherd, son of Jesse, no one, really low. And as if this were not enough in your sight, sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of our house, of your servant. And this decree, sovereign Lord, is for a mere human. David is a little bit blown away by this all. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, sovereign Lord. For the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. How great you are, sovereign Lord. There is no one like you and there is no God but you. As we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your people, Israel? The one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself and to make a name for himself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. It's not that Israel was remarkable, but the God of Israel was remarkable. You have established your people, Israel, as your very own forever. And you, Lord, have become their God. And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant in his house. Do as you promised. David's got going, I'm going to do really well and you're going to bless me because of it. He said, God, keep your promise. Be faithful to yourself, to your own words. Do as you promise, so that your name will be great forever. Then people will say, the Lord Almighty is God over Israel and the house of your servant David will be established in your sight. Lord Almighty, God of Israel, you revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you. So your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Sovereign Lord, you are God. Your covenant is trustworthy. And you have promised these good things to your servant. 
Be pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, sovereign Lord, have spoken. And with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. David made some small faltering steps towards God. You know, he was prepared to face Goliath and he was prepared to face various other enemies of Israel. And what did God do? David's little faltering steps uh, towards God was met by the lumbering, gigantic kindness of God. And Solomon talks about that twice. He goes, you know, your kindness towards my father, your kindness towards my father. David did not deserve this kingdom that was given to him. It was God's outrageous grace. We sang a little bit about it earlier, didn't we? Reckless grace. It was reckless grace that gave David this kingdom. And Solomon mentions this mercy because like his dad, he's in need of it too. Solomon is ultimately aware of his inadequacy for everything that comes along. There's that incredible confession. He's killed his enemies and he's ascended the throne. He is now king of Israel. And yet he says to God Almighty, I am only a little child and I do not know how to carry out my duties. He was a grown man, but he was confessing what he felt in his heart, that he was not up to the task. Before Israel, this was David's son. This was the, uh, uh, the next king in line to the throne. But before God, Solomon is very well aware that he is vulnerable, that he is needing some input. Solomon may have consolidated power in the first couple of chapters of 1 Kings with arrogance and bloodshed and aggression, but he is desperate for an alternative. You know, he wants a different way to run the kingdom. He goes, uh, you know what, I'm not up to this. And God, give me a discerning heart. Administer justice. And he wants to work for his people. And he wants to be good to them. He wants to uh, make just decisions. You know, be fair to them. When they come to him, he wants to make wise pronouncements. He wants to promote righteousness. And how does God feel about Solomon's request to be a good administer? He says the Lord was pleased. God was chuffed. That's a good answer. Up to this point, you haven't done so well, but that is a good answer, Solomon. You know, you've done badly so far, but I like this bit. You've done well. And God's pleasure is so profound, it's just over the top. It's completely out of proportion. Solomon has one moment where he says, you know what, I'm not up to it. I need help. He's killed people and done whatever unspeakable things. But God's grace is over the top. It's reckless. And he goes, Solomon, your wisdom is going to be unequaled in history. There are more deserving people of this than Solomon, but God's grace is being uh, just over the top with this guy. And he says, you know what? More than will you get more wisdom than you could possibly ask for. I'm going to give you wealth. And if you were to look later on in uh, the book of uh, uh, Kings, you'll find out how much wealth he gets. You'll find out it's extraordinary. 
and you'll find he's given exceptional prominence and honour. And it's just over the top. What is this God doing that just replies to a single sentence with such incredible generosity? Well, and I do do this too often, but let us remind ourselves of the greatest fictional story ever told. Turn to Luke chapter 15. This is the greatest fictional story that's ever been told. And it's all about this. Luke chapter 15, verse 20. So the son that had sort of rejected the dad and wandered off and spent all the dad's wealth, realised he'd made a mistake. And it goes in verse 20. So he got up and he went to his father. And then it says this. But while he was still a long way off. Everyone say long way off. Long way off. It's a long way off. He hadn't come. He hadn't got out his words yet. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him. His father saw him because he was looking for him. Because he was waiting for him. He was expecting him. And he was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son. Just abandoned all social protocol didn't wait for his son to get on his knees and go dad I'm sorry I've not been good just his dad goes flipping coming for you buddy and he threw his arms around him and he kisses him and there's that sense of uh, just over the top compassion it's completely out of proportion to this son's repentance you know this son's like you know I'm eating pig food I really could do with some better food and this tiny bit of repentance and the father just overwhelms him with hugs and kisses and the, the son, said to, son said to him father I've sinned against heaven and against you I'm not worthy to be called your son and he's just after a bit of bread and butter and a roof over his head because he's blown it all but the father said to his servants quick there's a sense of urgency there's a sense of this is the most important thing right now. Forget everything else. Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again and he was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. We need to know that even of our, our bad, our tentative or faltering steps of a sinner towards God where we go oh that wasn't so good God or yeah I missed the mark on that one Jesus provokes in God this incredible overwhelming compassion where he just rushes towards us and he would sweep us off our feet. Where we go, oh, I'm sorry I did that. And God goes, let me show you how much I love you again. I can tell you from my own personal experience that if you've ever told God, I'm off, I've had enough of this, this is too difficult, I want to do my own thing. I know where pleasure lies and it's not with you. He waits and he watches and he looks out for you and he's poised with the robe in one hand and the ring in, in the other waiting to say to you welcome home 
His grace is every single time completely over the top. It's disproportionate to your level of feeling of forgiveness, of uh, repentance. It's outrageous. And the parable is told for that very reason. And Solomon makes this single statement of heartfelt uh, inadequacy and God just bowls him over. And there's an invitation this morning. Even a faltering steps of, yeah, I wish I hadn't done that. Would just be met with God's overwhelming, reckless love. So hopefully, as we've looked through this question, we're reminded of God's redemptive passion. You know, he loves us and he wants to restore us and and be with us and help us. And he has this care for us that is just uh, incredible. And he has a kindness and a sensitivity that we won't find in anyone else. But I want us to consider our, divine, our response to this divine invitation. If God came to you in a dream tonight and he said, what would you have me give you? What do you want? What's on your heart? What is making you anxious? For 99% of Christians, God has called us to live for him in our situations. Most of us have not been called to abandon the here and now and go and do something else. Most of us have been called to live out him in our families, in our work situations, and in our neighbourhoods. God is looking for us to be him in those places. And Solomon this morning invites us not to ask for TikTok success or YouTube wealth or instantaneous fame or a good return on our stocks and shares or a massive profitability on our property um, portfolio. Solomon invites us to ask for the ability to serve here and now for the ability to play second fiddle now, which we read right at the beginning. And so I want us to ask ourselves, what roles do we have right now? What roles do we have today? And what do we need help with? What could you do having God's input in? Turn to Colossians 3, last reading for today. Funny how the books of the Bible move about. Colossians wasn't in this place last time I looked. Um, Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. Always a popular one. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Hallelujah. Yeah, no. Um, Husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. Children, 
We all say hallelujah to this one. Obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, a little very specific uh, demographic here. Fathers, don't embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Don't be harsh with them. Slaves, and we tend to sort of widen this out to anyone that has to work for a living. Obey your earthly masters in everything and do, and do it, not only with their eye when their eye is on you and to curry their favour, but with a sincerity of heart and a reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do. Everyone say whatever. 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 There's nothing excluded from that. You can't think, oh, you know, that other thing that I do, I don't have to do that for the Lord. That doesn't count. That holds no substance here. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as for working for the Lord, not for human masters. Because you, to be fair, human masters are often stinkers and we often try and get away with what we can because uh, um, they make all sorts of terrible decisions. And Paul says, yeah, well, work for Jesus in those circumstances. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance of the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. And so it finishes there. And so, as I finish, I invite you to ask God for help to serve in your situation. Husbands and wives, ask for God's help to serve the other one. You're not very easy to be married to and they need all the help they can get. If you are a parent, consider what you have to do and ask for help in raising your children. It's not an automatic gift and it doesn't just come from watching and reading parenting advice guidelines. God gives us help in how to raise our kids. We need help in serving others. Sunday mornings are not easy. And house group and prayer meetings and other times we rub shoulders. These are opportunities where we ask God, how can I serve the person next to us? We need help in our daily chores. We need, if we work, if we work, we need to ask for strength and ability. We need to do it well and to serve Jesus in those places. Your boss may be horrible, the people you work with may be terrible, but you're there because God has put you there for a moment and uh, Jesus would have you serve him in that circumstance. If we are caregivers, we need help to give care. Whatever situation God has put us in, it is um, it is important for us to ask for help, to lean on him, to use whatever resources God would put our way. If we are retired or unemployed, it, we still have things and people that we relate to and are responsible for. And we need to ask for purpose wherever we are. And finally, as well as our families, as well in our jobs and well in our neighbourhoods, we need help to serve here. This place needs people to help serve. I don't like the sound of my own voice. It would be great if we had more people that were up for doing a little bit more Sunday speaking, or any Sunday speaking. Um, bless Tim 
and Rachel and the worship guys. But we need more people to step up and want to serve God in that way. We need people to be on the Sunday school rotor and to want to do the words at the back. Because blessing Pete does his best. But any... Uh, uh, any supplementary uh, help with, with the, everything from sort of teas and coffees and cleaning up and hosting home groups and running things. There's all sorts of opportunities for service in the church. And this is often one of the best places to start serving because hopefully we, cheat, we treat you gently and then you become more confident in it and can take those skills elsewhere. When God asks you, what can I give you? Let me encourage you, not ask for success or wealth or renown or the death of your enemies, especially uh, uh, Mrs. Murgatroyd at number 17, who is just an outrageous neighbour. We need to ask, God help me serve where I am. Please bow your heads. Heavenly Father, uh, we find in David an ordinary, fallen, uh, flawed individuals, but we find in them also so many uh, reasons for hope. Lord God, I pray that we would be good at leaning on you, at relying on you, that, that we would be, uh, that we would know from experience how quick you are to be filled with compassion and to forgive and to put that ring and robe on us. And Lord God, lastly, I pray that we would ask from you opportunities to serve well, that we would be competent in different areas of life where you have put us. That, Lord God, that we would be work for you in different contexts and circumstances of our lives and that you would supernaturally empower us to do your very best in that place. Lord God, I pray all this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.